0: We open the Bible to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, we will read the entire psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field. The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The basis of this psalm and the rest of the scripture, we have the instruction of Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6, which will be the focus of the sermon this morning. So we turn to Lord's Day 3. Question 6 asks, did God then create man? so wicked and perverse by no means, but God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism is in the middle of instructing us in that first ingredient of true happiness, namely the knowledge of our sin and misery. The Catechism has brought together the teaching of Scripture on that subject and has set before us the reality of our misery, pointed out to us the source of our misery. Catechism has led us to trace the genealogy of human misery all the way back to sin, going back to the first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Catechism has taught us how we know our sin and misery and perceive its nature, namely out of the law of God. God. Now, Lord's Day 3 is going to address the important question, how did mankind end up in the condition that we find the human race in now? Where did sin, the source of our misery, come from? And who is to blame for it? Where does the responsibility for our misery lie? Lord's Day 3 is now going to trace the ancestry of the source of our misery back to the fall of Adam and Eve. But now, in Lord's Day 3, we have three questions and answers that are doctrinally rich. Questions and answers that lay out foundational truths which shape The Christian's view of the world, the Christian's view of life, the Christian's view of himself or herself. Very important truths, and thus we do well to slow down a little bit and spend a little time here in Lord's Day 3. And that's what we're going to do this time through the Catechism. We're going to look at each of these questions and answers individually. And so we start with question and answer 6 which teaches us the very important truth of God's creation of man and the way God made the human race in the beginning. God created man good. That's the leading statement in answer six, and that's our theme. God created man good. Let's look first at the fact that God created man. Secondly, how God created man, namely good, And then we'll come back to the question, why then so wicked and perverse? Before we get to the main point of question and answer six, it's worth pondering this simple statement in answer six that contains so much. God created man. And before we get to the good part, Ponder just that. God created man. And man here doesn't just refer to male, but man here refers to the whole human race. God created mankind. That statement, at the same time, both humbles us and lifts us up. Points out our lowliness as well as our unique dignity. God created us, human beings. That shows us how low we are. And how high God is. God is far higher than I am. And you are. God is far greater. Far more glorious. He is the sovereign. He is the eternal one. He is the almighty one. We are the work of his fingers. Just as much as. The moon and the stars that the psalmist points out as he surveys the heavens and calls the heavens, the moon and the stars, the sun, all that populates the vast expanse of space, that wonderful creation of God, it is the work of his fingers. So are we. We are creatures, meaning We are beings who do not exist of ourselves. We are not self-sufficient. We are beings who have been fashioned by another who is far greater, far more glorious than we are, and thus deserving of all of our worship and praise. A vast chasm of difference exists between us and God. And that chasm between us is far vaster, more vast, than even the furthest reaches of space. God is God. We are creatures. And that should humble us. God is worthy of all praise. God is all glorious. And all that I am, I owe to him. He in his wisdom has fashioned me. And thus my life is about this. That I give my maker thankful praise. Whose wondrous works my soul amaze. We're humbled this statement that God created mankind is also a statement that lifts us up. Think about it. I'm a creature made by this glorious, wonderful, perfect, majestic God. He made me. And the God who made me. Is not some unthinking, cold, distant power. Though there is that, fa- that, that vast chasm, vast chasm of difference between us. Yet God is a God who is also near us. He is our creator who fashioned us all that we are. And in his word, he speaks to us and he tells us of his care for us. He tells us of his care, especially in the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. He is a God whose name is excellent to us. He made me. And this all-glorious, this perfect God doesn't make mistakes. This God doesn't make things for no purpose. He made me. And thus, the very doctrine of creation that God made man points out the unique dignity that we have as human beings. Creatures fashioned by God. And not only that, but as creatures made in a very special way and made for a very special purpose. Though we are just as much creatures as the sun, moon, and stars that we see in the heavens, nonetheless, God has made us to stand out among all of his creatures. The psalmist points that out in verse 5. Thou hast made him, thou hast made man a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. There's something unique about man as God created him in the beginning. Man is crowned with glory and honor. God made man to be the crown of his creation. The crown and the glory of his creation. You think back on what you know from Genesis 1 and 2 and you see that. How did God make Adam? How did God make Eve? In a very personal way. In the preceding days of the creation week, God said, Let there be and there was. He spoke, and by his almighty word, it was. But when God came to the creation of man, whom he would be pleased to endow with special honor and glory, God said, Let us. He spoke within himself. Let us make man in our own image. And God, as it were, got hands-on in the work of the creation of man. He formed Adam's body out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. God took that rib from Adam and, as it were, by his own hand fashioned Eve. There is a unique dignity that we see there in the very way that God fashioned our first parents and breathed into them to make them living souls. He made us in a marvelous way. He made us to be earthly creatures, yes. We're earthly. And in that sense, we're a little lower than the angels, as the psalmist says, in that we are confined to this earth. Our senses are confined to this earth and to the visible. We were made to live in this creation. But that's not all that we are. God made us a spiritual being, He gave us a soul. We have spiritual life. We are able to apprehend and comprehend spiritual realities beyond what these physical eyes see. God has knit body and soul together so mysteriously. When you think of the constitution, the makeup of the human person, it's a wonder It's just as marvelous as when you look out upon the heavens and look at the vastness of space and all of the stars that populate that seemingly infinite distance out there. The human person, our human bodies, are like a universe within. And then there is that mysterious connection of body and soul that no medical or scientific instrument can ever fully explore and understand. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. We are led to praise him when we look at the wonder of our own creation. Physical, spiritual creatures who are self-conscious, thinking, willing, rational creatures. God has given us a heart, a mind, an ability to reason, an ability to desire. And God has made man to have headship and dominion over the creation, as Psalm 8 also points out. There is a unique dignity that God gave to man when God created man in the beginning as the crown of his creation. Now, let's delve into that and apply it personally now. Looking at the doctrine of creation and applied specifically to us. God created us. There are so many applications that roll out of this truth. Let me point out a few. First, that God created man means nothing else created you. It's a simple and obvious statement, isn't it? But it's a significant one. In this day and age which says, you are a cosmic accident, the byproduct of mindless natural processes. That statement carries a lot of significance. God made you. Nothing else made you. You're not an animal whose existence is merely this. That you fill your moment of life with as much of the temporary pleasures of this life as you can and try to pass on your genes before you are snuffed out like a spark. No, God made you. God, the high and lofty one whose name is excellent, and God makes all of his creatures for a purpose. And that changes how we view the human person, how we view human life, how we view ourselves, how we view others. And that leads to the second application. That God made us means God gives us a purpose. God gives us meaning. God gives us direction in human life. In fact, answer six contains a concise and beautiful statement of the purpose of existence. The purpose of life for all of us. God created man good after his own image in true righteousness and holiness for this purpose. That he might rightly know God his creator. Heartily love him. And live with him in eternal happiness. To glorify and praise him. That's what we are made for. And that's what we are redeemed for. As the elect people of God. To know our God. And to live with him. In eternal happiness. And the best activity which is a part of that happiness, is glorifying and praising our God. That's the purpose of life. That means the God who made us also makes the rules for human life. Here's another application of the simple truth, God made us. God made us, that means God makes the rules for how we live. He determines who we are, what we are like, how we shall live. That means we may not play god. We may not play creator. Perhaps you're familiar with the famous poem by William Ernest Henley. Maybe some of you school, some of you students have looked at it in class, in school. There's a line near the end of that poem, "I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul." That poet there expresses the very spirit that gave birth to human sin and human misery. The spirit of the devil who said in Isaiah 14 verse 14, I shall be like the Most High. I am the master of my own soul. I will create and fashion my own life. I will decide what the purpose of life is. I will be who I want to be and do what I want to do I am God. No. The only one who may say, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, the only one who may say that, is the maker, the creator. You and I are not the maker or the creator. We are creatures and we have been fashioned by the creator's hands and we exist for the praise and the glory of the creator. God made us. God makes the rules and God tells us what the truly good life is. And while man who is lost in sin may think that following the advice of that poem will lead him to happiness, being the captain of his own soul, every man who tries to be the captain of his own soul will unfailingly guide his own soul to shipwreck. God is the maker and the captain of our lives. Another application of the doctrine of creation. Something to say about self-worth. This is something perhaps many of us struggle with in one way or another, isn't it? Perhaps silently. Compare yourself to others who you think are better have more gifts, smarter, greater abilities. And those comparisons lead to feelings of, I'm nothing, I'm useless. But then the doctrine of creation comes as a beautiful comfort. God made man. God made you. God made you the way you are. Now, Of course, we all have our weaknesses, we all have our flaws, we all have our sins on account of our fallen condition. But now, for us as God's people, that doesn't cancel out the reality that God made us and God is sovereign over us and God governs and guides our lives. We are the work of his hands. You are the work of his hands. Every single one of you, children of God, are the work of his hands. God doesn't mess Things up. He created you a certain way. He formed your body and your soul and your mind. He gave you the gifts that you have in the measure and in the amount that you have wisely for His purpose. And that's why comparing ourselves to others in the church or in the community isn't helpful. Don't do that because God didn't want. A bunch of clones. He could have made a bunch of clones if he wanted. He could have made us all the same. He could have given us all the same gifts. He could have given us all of the same gifts in exactly the same measure. But that would have impoverished his creation. That would have impoverished the body of Christ. God created his people different for his good purpose. The doctrine of creation should shape how we view ourselves and help us fight against that if we struggle with it, self-worth. My self-worth is not found in what other people think of me. Or in the measure of this or that gift that I have. My self-worth is found in God. In who I am to him. Especially in Jesus Christ as he has saved me in the precious blood of his son. But also this, that God formed and shaped me and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God created man. One more application of that. Something for your children to think about. How do you treat your classmates at school? Or your brothers and sisters at home? Is there someone you like to make fun of? Make fun of because they're different? Make fun of because they don't have the same gifts as you? Think about it, children. What are you doing when you make fun of them? You're making fun of God's creation. You mustn't do that. You mustn't do that. Making fun of God's creation. Another person whom God has also redeemed with the blood of his son, just like you. Don't do that. Not only does it hurt that classmate or your brother, your sister, but it dishonors God. We must show our love to God by loving one another, speaking kindly, and treating one another kindly. Remember that. But that's not only for children, is it? It's for all of us, because sadly, we don't grow out of that, do we? Let us as adults, too, think twice about the way we talk about others, the way we talk about those who are different, the way we talk about those who don't have the same gifts, perspectives. As we do, we can be so quick to cut with our words. Let us remember Proverbs 17, verse 5. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. God made man. Finally, one more application of the doctrine of creation. That God created man, that God made you, means... Man is accountable to a higher power. To the highest power. God the creator. Man is responsible to him. And that means there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as justice. The philosophy that sweeps through our society and is becoming the predominant thinking in our age is the atheistic evolutionary philosophy that there is no God and that all things came about by evolution. Right and wrong do not evolve. There's no ethics among animals. If that's all that we are, advanced apes, then there is no such thing as right and wrong. When that monkey in the jungle kills its fellow monkey, murder wasn't committed. And if that's all we are, then there's no such thing as murder among human beings either. For there to be right and wrong, for there to be ethics, for there to be justice, there must be a creator who is also the lawgiver, who defines what is right and wrong. Not on his whim, but whose definition of right and wrong is based upon his own unchanging and perfect being. And that's our God. Because there is God, and because he is the creator, and because he made man, there is such a thing as good and evil, and there is such a thing as justice. Good and evil is not just a word for I like this and I don't like that. There is objectively right and wrong. And that means all wrongs will be made right. The God of justice maintains his moral order and evil will not triumph. The philosophy of evolution in our secular culture is a worldview that leads to despair. It leads to despair because it takes away the purpose and meaning of life. All your life is, is a bunch of atoms jostling around in a void. The only reason you exist is that those atoms happened to come together just right. And they'll break apart eventually. And you'll be gone. There's no meaning. There's no purpose to life. That's evolution. But evolution leads to an even deeper despair. And it's this despair. There's really no such thing as good and evil. Or justice. Tell that to the sufferer. Your suffering has no meaning. Your suffering is just the jostling around of atoms in the void. There's no purpose, there's no meaning, and it'll never be made better. Because there is no such thing as justice. That's where the godless philosophy of our age, where evolutionism leads. But the Bible says no. The Bible says God created man. And as we'll see in a moment, God created man good because God is good. And God maintains his moral order. And though we live in a world that is ravaged by evil, the sovereign God, the lawgiver, the just one will right all wrongs. And the Christian need not despair even in the face of the most horrible evil because God is good and God reigns. And God's justice will triumph. Thankful we can be that there is a God, and that this God created man. God created man, and as the catechism goes on, God created man good. We turn to look at that now. God made man good in the beginning. And now everything that we talk about in the second point, we must understand we're referring to man As he was in the beginning, as created, before the fall. What we're going to talk about here has changed, of course, because of the fall. And we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But now, man, in the beginning, as he was created by God, was good. Good in every single respect, in every way. Good. That word, of course, can mean many things. And in our day-to-day speech, the word good has such wide usage that... Sometimes it feels as though the word means nothing. We call things good. Everything from the weather, to the pumpkin pie we had on Thanksgiving, to God himself. But in biblical usage, the word good is rich. God is good. He's supremely good. He's absolutely good. He's the overflowing fountain of all good. That's why Jesus says in Mark 10 verse 18... There is none good but one. That is God. God's goodness refers to the sum total of all of his perfections. God is good. Absolutely good. And that means every work of his hands. Bears the stamp of his goodness. What is the refrain that we read throughout Genesis 1, at the end of each day of creation, God saw the creatures that he made and they were good in his sight. They were good. And then at the end of the sixth day, after God had made Adam and Eve, God saw that it was very good. Again, pointing to that singular dignity that God gave to the human race as the crown of his creation. Good. God made man good. And there's there's really two main ideas to that rich biblical usage of the word good. In the first place, good has the idea of suitability or fitness for the purpose God intends. When God looked at his creation and saw that it was good, that means it's what he meant it to be. It was useful for the purpose he intended for it, namely that it would glorify him. That God made man good means that man was perfectly suited to the purpose God had for man, namely to live with him in happiness and to praise and to glorify him. Good means useful, beneficial, well adapted to God-given purpose. But in the second place, good also means pure, morally upright, ethically pure. And God also made man in the beginning to be morally perfect. So that man's whole nature, his mind, his thoughts, his heart, his feelings, his words, his actions, all of them were in perfect harmony with the holy being of God. There was no disagreement, no disconnect between God and man. Man was morally pure and upright. God made man good in the beginning. But now, answer six focuses our attention on What we can consider to be the core, the core or the heart of man's original goodness. Namely, that God created man in the beginning after his own image. Think of Genesis 1 verse 26. The first thing God says within himself as the triune God before creating man is, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The image of God is the defining characteristic of man as created. Again, as created, because as we'll see next week with the fall, man loses the image of God entirely. And that image of God is restored through the saving, saving work of Jesus Christ. But man as created was invested with this image of God, and this was the distinguishing feature, the greatest gift of God to man. The image of God. That's the glory and the honor with which God crowned man, as Psalm 8 says. God made man in his own image. And even though man is a little lower than the angels from the perspective that he is a lowly, earthly creature, yet man was given an honor and a dignity that even the angels did not have. And it's this, the image of God. But That leads to the question... What exactly is the image of God? Ask that question to the children. Children, how would you answer that question? Think about it. What is the image of God? Because Genesis, though it says God made us in his image, Genesis doesn't explain exactly what that image is. We have to go elsewhere in the Bible. What is the image of God? Maybe we think... The image of God is our human looks, our face, the way our bodies are formed. But that's, that's not exactly what the image of God is. After all, God is purely spiritual. God doesn't have a body. The image of God isn't our human appearance. The image of God isn't our minds or our ability to think, our consciousness, our intelligence. The image of God is something else. The image of God is spiritual. The image of God is a spiritual likeness. God created us to look like him spiritually in a smaller, creaturely way. Now Psalm 8 gives us a helpful illustration we can use to understand this. Verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained. Children, think about the moon a minute. On a clear night, you see the moon, a full moon, in the night sky shining brightly with its silver light. Where did the moon get its light? Does the moon produce its own light? You know that's not the case. The moon gets its light from the sun. The sun, which is far brighter, so bright you can't look at it. The sun shines its light, and that light hits the cold, rocky surface of the moon, and the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light of its own, but it is a reflector of the sun, so that it looks like the sun in a smaller, dimmer, way. That's what the image of God is like. God is the sun. He is beautiful. He is marvelous. He shines. He is light. All true light and beauty and glory and perfection comes from him. He shines like the sun and God made us to be like the moon. God's light and beauty and glory shines on us and we reflect in a beautiful way, but in a smaller, in a dimmer way. We reflect that light of God. So that when you look at the moon, you see a glimpse of the sun. You see the sun's light. So it is when you look at the child of God made in God's image. You see a glimpse of God himself. Because God's glory and God's beauty shines on us. And reflects off of us. That's what it means that God made us in his image. God made man to reflect his own glory and beauty and attributes. So that man is a living likeness of God. Glowing with the rays of God's own light and glory. The image of God is looking like God spiritually. In a smaller and dimmer yet beautiful way. The way the moon looks like the sun. Because the moon reflects the light of the sun. Now we can get a little narrower. Understanding that concept of looking like God spiritually. The Bible in the New Testament, does tell us exactly what makes up the image of God. What are the spiritual characteristics that God created man with? The spiritual characteristics that especially reflect his glory. Three things. God created man with true knowledge of himself, true righteousness, and true holiness. And those three spiritual attributes with which God created us, those things make up the image of God. And those are the reflectors, as it were, that shine with the reflected light of God's glory. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament teaches us that when it teaches us about the restoration of God's image to fallen but elect and redeemed children of God. So in Colossians 3 verse 10, for example, we read this. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The image of God, in the first place, is a true knowledge of God. A true, living, spiritual, relational knowledge of God. God made us to know him, as the catechism says. And there's a lot packed into that word know. It's not just knowing with the mind, but knowing with the heart. It's living in relationship with God. That reflects the beauty and glory of God. Then the other two main parts of the image. Ephesians 4.24 That ye put on the new man, which after God, and the idea there is again, after the image of God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Righteousness is being in harmony with God's will. God made man in harmony with himself, and that reflected the beauty of God's own righteousness. And God made man in the beginning to be holy. Holiness is separation from evil and devotion to the good. And Adam and Eve in the beginning were fully devoted with all their hearts to God, and that reflected the beauty of God's own holiness. And so the image of God... It's a spiritual likeness. We look like God spiritually. And especially in these three ways. Knowing him. The knowledge of love. Righteousness. Harmony with him and his will. Holiness. Devotion to him and separation from all that is sin. All that is evil. That's how God made man good in the beginning. in Holiness. and Righteousness. To know his creator and to live with him in eternal happiness. To glorify and praise him. That above all is the unique dignity God gave to man. So the significance of the image of God is this. The image of God makes man fit for fellowship and friendship with God. That's the goal of God making man in his own image. Man being made in God's image makes man capable of standing in a unique covenantal relationship with God. A relationship that's unique and different than God's relationship to all of his creation. God stands in relationship to all of the works of his hands. The sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants. But none of those things are in God's image. None of those things have a relationship of love, friendship, companionship, fellowship. But God made man to be his image bearer. To stand in a relationship of love with him. That defines what it is. To be a human being and now for us to be a redeemed human being. Life. Happiness. Happiness revolves around God and living with Him in fellowship. That is the supreme good for us. That's what we have been made for. Fellowship with God and real, genuine happiness is only found there in knowing and living with our God. That's why When man lost the image of God at the fall, he was alienated and separated from God completely. And that's why the Bible teaches when God saves us in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.28 says, we are conformed to the image of Christ. As God conforms us to the image of Christ, he brings us back into his fellowship. He establishes us in his covenant. And by the work of his grace, we again begin to reflect the beauty and the glory of our God. God created man in the beginning. God created man good in the beginning. Now we circle back to the question. Why then so wicked and perverse? When we look at the human race, and when we look at ourselves even, good is not the first word that would jump into our minds. Good is not what we see. Instead, the words of question six are what we see everywhere around us. The words of question six fit our experience perfectly. Wicked. That is, turned away. From God's good commandments and doing the opposite. Perverse, twisted in upon oneself, corrupt. Man is so wicked and perverse. And when we look out upon the human race, we don't see the image of God anymore. The only place we see the image of God is where God's grace is at work. In Christ. What explains this? And this is really getting at the main point of Lord's Day 3, which we will develop more in the coming question and answers. The main point of Lord's Day 3 is to answer the question, who's to blame for our sin and misery? And so question 3, or rather question 6, would have us face this question. Is it God's fault? Is our misery God's fault? Is the reality of sin... In the corruption of our human race. The fact that we are so wicked and perverse by nature. Is that God's fault? Many wish to blame God. And our fallen human nature would like to join in that great blame shifting game of the human race. And pin God for it. God made me this way. How often do people say that? God made me this way. And therefore I can't help it. I can't help but sin. Is that true? Did God make us that way? The answer is no. Sin is not the way God made us. God made man good after his own image. With the ability in the beginning to perfectly obey his will and his law. That's getting into what we'll look at next week. The explanation... For our sin and misery, the explanation for the fact that man is so wicked and perverse is man's own willful fall into sin. All of those efforts to pin the blame on God are simply a continuation of the blame shifting that began in Eden. Remember what happened after Adam and Eve ran and they hid from God and God came to them? Adam pointed his finger at Eve and said, It's her fault. Not only that, but he blamed God too. He said, You gave her to me. It's your fault too, God. And Eve pointed the finger at the serpent. Always pointing away. And that's the human nature. That's our nature too. The blame always belongs on someone but me. Ultimately God. No, God is not to blame. And man may not blame God. Never. God made man good after his own image. The blame belongs to man who willfully sinned and plunged himself into his misery. The wonderful thing is. Although God may not be blamed for sin, let's give him all the credit for rescuing us from our sin, even though we don't deserve it. Because God gave Christ to save us unworthy sinners and he deals with us in such an undeserved way. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And when we think about the fact that we are fallen sinful creatures, that phrase takes on a whole new layer of meaning. What are we that God should be mindful of us? Mindful of us, not in this way, to destroy us, but mindful of us in mercy and grace such that he saves us from our sins and rescues us from the perdition that we brought upon ourselves. God deals with us in grace even though we are to blame. For sin and misery. God deals with us this way He sends a man to save us, a real man, but not a mere man. One whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting, as the prophet Micah said. God was mindful of us. He visited us in Emmanuel, God the Son, in human flesh. God With us. So that in Hebrews 2. Verses 9 and 10. Psalm 8. Can be applied to Jesus. We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor. There's the work. That we can give all of the credit. To God for. He's not to blame for our sin. But give him all the credit for salvation. He sent Jesus, who took on our flesh, who was made a little lower than the angels, that he might suffer death for us to take away our sins. And now he is crowned with glory and honor. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the new head of a redeemed humanity through whose work. Our sins are forgiven. Righteousness is imputed to us. And we are clothed in it as with a robe. Our creator who made us also rescues us. By his own act of love and grace. Our creator became his own creation to save us from the wickedness and perversity. That we plunged ourselves into through Christ. He lifts us up from the depths. And lifts us up higher, higher even than we were in the beginning when he first made the human race. Let him be given all the glory for that. What reason we have to sing, O oh Lord, our oh Lord, how Excellent is thy name in all the earth. Thou who hast made me. Thou who didst make man in the beginning after his, after thy own image. And thou who hast rescued me from sin and condemnation. Through the man Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, oh Lord, how excellent is thy name and all the earth. Amen. Faithful God and Father, we thank and we praise Thee for the truth of creation that we could ponder this morning. Grant that this truth may shape our lives and shape our view of ourselves, shape the way that we live. and May this truth direct us above all things to Thee and Thy glory. It is for this that we have been created. And it is this for which we have been redeemed. That we might live with thee in eternal happiness. Glorify and praise thee. Hear us in mercy and grant our request for Jesus' sake. Amen.